Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and GEM, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go! Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, James Mackey. We have Jeremy Rooch with us today. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, for sure. So let's start with an introduction. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I, um, well, what I'm doing right now is I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Bandolier. Uh, what we do at Bandolier, and I'm sure we'll get more into this, is we provide fast-growing companies with U.S.-based inside sales uh, and other customer-facing teams on demand. Um, so, you know, our strategy is to primarily focus on small towns throughout the U.S. Uh, we go in, we find folks um, that are, you know, in the top 2% of applicants for these roles. And we have a pretty data-driven and rigorous way we go about interviewing for these roles. Uh, and we train them up and then we deploy them on behalf of our clients who are primarily, like I mentioned, fast-growing tech companies uh, with the idea that they can actually be hired directly uh, at the end of six months if there's a good mutual fit. Uh, prior to this, I was managing an inside sales team for a fintech startup based here in New York City called Bond Street, which is really what prompted me to start Bandelier. It was really that experience. Uh, and before that, I was doing something totally different. I actually started my career in finance out in Singapore, so completely different world. Uh, so had a, a diversity of experiences, but uh, this is actually, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, the longest tenure job I've ever had, uh, which is kind of wild to, to think about. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's funny too. I mean, my company is by far the longest tenure job. I honestly, I would have been considered a job hopper. Uh, <laughs> I, I I lost interest quickly, uh, but I, I didn't actually have too many jobs. I, I did like uh, I have corporate jobs, right? I did like um, I was I did SDR role actually. So oh, my first kind of great start job, if you will. Before that, I was working in a boxing gym. So in a boxing gym, yeah, this very traditional path, you know, as we've all done. You started a boxing gym, work your way up, SDR. Account executive, account management, you know, start your own company. Very traditional path. That's, you know, it's uh, funny. We've uh, we've had some success hiring people uh, from boxing, MMA type uh, type gyms into our SDR roles, and they always say, "This is great." You know, I'm not getting punched in the face. Right. Uh, <laughs> Just yeah, yeah. I mean, well, well, you sort of do, but <laughs> not, totally different not, way. Not physically, getting, yeah. <laughs> verbally punched in the face it just feels different, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's actually, it's probably a more traditional background for the SDR role, more helpful background for the SDR role that might be uh, traditionally appreciated. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. So anyways, it's, uh, I think for the, sorry, K-Force, which is like a publicly traded staffing company, I was there a year and a half. And then I worked for like a smaller boutique firm for a year and a half. And then I I uh, quit and started my own company. Uh, so, I, and I've been doing this now for eight years. So the majority wow. of my career has actually been as uh, a CEO of Secure Vision. Yeah, it's it's wild how fast the time. I, I guess the time probably goes cliche. Time probably flies no matter what you're doing, but right. especially doing this. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it does fly by. It really does. Well, anyway, so we we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how companies can kind of increase their batting average when it comes to accurately predicting and uh, hiring, getting accurate, uh, hiring the best possible folks and thinking about uh, predictive indexing to kind of work backward and 
determine, you know, as people are interviewing with your company, possibly how they're engaging throughout the interview process and and the indicators that will determine if uh, they're actually going to be successful in the role. So I, I would love to learn from you a little bit about like when you're, when you have employees working for you or for your customers, how you're able to pull kind of data about how they're doing and tie it back to the interview process to kind of, I suppose, just continuously optimize your interview process to get better and better folks on your team? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think inherent, you know, to the value that we're providing to a lot of our customers, is just that we've hired for these roles a lot of times, right? And for very similar roles a lot of times. So like, you know, we've at this point hired hundreds of salespeople, hundreds of customer experience people. And so what that allows us to do is get a really good set of data, kind of what works and what doesn't work uh, when it comes to hiring for these roles. But one thing I always stress is even when we hadn't hired for any of these roles in our earliest days, I mean, literally from day one, the first interview we ever did back in our office in Binghamton in, in 2017, already then uh, my colleague, Matt, who uh, is now our head of operations, had built out a framework for our interview, right? Where we asked very specific questions and graded out those questions in very specific ways. And even though it was just that one first interview we were doing, you know, Matt and I were sitting there and we graded out the same stuff we still do today. We graded out each question individually, met, consolidated the responses. And the reason that was so important, I mean, it seemed ridiculous at the time, right? We were hiring the first team member, like we could just talk about it. Do we really need this like super sophisticated framework that's based on absolutely no performance data, right? But the reason it was so important is it established a framework that we could then use moving forward six, 12, 18 months later. That first team member, we saw how they performed. Then we went back to the interview framework and we said, how did they do on each individual question? And as the years have progressed, we've been able to get a little bit more sophisticated in how we do this, where now, you know, in performance reviews, that managers are filling out, we bucket those by the same categories that we have in the interview question. So it's not just, is this interview predictive of overall performance? Um, it's, is the question actually measuring the trait that it's designed to be measuring? Very specific example for you would be, we have a bunch of questions, and this is no secret, we tell everybody this, that uh, are designed to measure receptiveness to feedback. Um, and there's a bunch of different ways we try to get at that trait. We think coachability is one of the most important traits in an SDR. In fact, it's not just that we think it, the data shows that it is. Um, and so we ask a you know, set of very specific questions around that. In our performance reviews, though, receptiveness to feedback is obviously one of the categories in our templates. And so we can now go back and not just assess, is the you know feedback receptiveness question predictive overall performance? Is it actually predictive of somebody's receptiveness to feedback. And if it's not, we need to find ways to tweak it so that we're sussing out that trait. Uh, right. It's like, is it, is it like, are people just kind of responding to those questions well or interviewing well, or is it actually, you know, when you've had the opportunity to work for the person for six months is an actual indicator of their ability to, does it align? Which this is, uh, this is really good. This is smart stuff. So I, I think, is there, is this all kind of a very manual process where, you're just, you know, essentially on case by case basis going through different employee, um, you know, performance, looking at performance reviews, and then kind of manually looking back at notes in your applicant tracking system. Or is there some 
kind of automation piece to it so it's a little bit more scalable or how can you how can you do this in a consistent way that's more so optimized versus like just you know piece by piece manually uh grinding it out yeah so a couple of a couple of themes here and the, the answer is it's a little bit of both right? right in our early days certainly it was entirely manual right right yeah bunch of Google spreadsheets that are all sitting in different places with different, you know, interview results. And we'd have to manually tie it back over the years. We've gotten a little bit more structured in how we go about things. So now, for instance, all of this is built out in Airtable. And the nice thing about using Airtable for this is it's much easier to track a single team member object across multiple processes, if that makes sense, because you're using a relational database. And so what that means is we can look at an individual team member and how they do in the interview and then look at their performance review scores, which is, exists in a totally different you know, base with totally different permissions and things like that, and actually uh, make those connections a little bit more easily. Um, the risk, of course, in doing this, for instance, on a daily basis, is you wind up tweaking the process so much just based right. on the variations that it becomes irrelevant. And so we try to make a concerted effort not to you know, constantly go back every single time and, and look back, but do it, you know, call it on an annual basis or, or something like that so that, um, you know, we actually have sufficient volume of data to make the decision. So as an example, you know, last fall, we brought in an external data analyst to look at all of this stuff, uh, put together a deck, make some recommendations. And we've done a few kind of iterations of similar kinds of projects where we, we try to do it on a regular enough basis that we're actually changing the process where, mm. where it's necessary to do that but not that we're changing it every five minutes. Cause if you do that, all of the data obviously becomes irrelevant. No. Oh, yeah. I mean, and there's going to be like, you're looking at an aggregate. Exactly. Like if you're, you're identifying like big trends, right. Where it's, it's happening consistently. Like you wouldn't want to change your strategy off like a one-off yeah. situation, just like you wouldn't alter your product roadmap based on one customer request. Like you would exactly. want to be more strategic in, in your approach to that. But I think that that, like, this is an interesting concept, like taking your interview format and process and tying it, mapping it to performance reviews, which are going to be outcome focused. And quite honestly, job descriptions should be more outcome focused than they typically are, right? Opposed to just like a bunch of different tasks. What are the outcomes that the role needs to drive? And then again, like kind of cascading down those outcomes into questions that we feel are going to give us insight to that, right? Yep. And mapping that with what's also covered and the performance review. Yeah. Like, yes, like all of this should be connected, but maybe there needs to be a bigger emphasis on like actually being thoughtful about that and mapping out like, okay, because I, I think there's a lot of companies, if not like most of them, that they're they're not thinking about this at all. Like is, is the way that we're interviewing, like they might think like, okay, we want somebody really good, but they're not thinking about the correlations between how they're interviewing and performance outcomes on like a performance review and mapping it back to see if if the there's uh, the interview effective process is effective. Um, they they might be a little bit more high level where there might just be thinking like we we need good people we need to have a structured interview process to get good people but I think the feedback loop piece is really interesting it's kind of like a step deeper than a lot of companies are going right yeah I think what's kind of interesting we we've observed is where you see organizations that you know need to do this at massive scale right so take the military I was actually just talking to somebody who did this kind of work for a military, um, you know, when, when he was doing his, his service. Um, and, you know, he was describing, you know, he interviewed 10,000 people and they have a very methodical way to go about assessing 
you know, who is right for what role. Um, now, I don't know necessarily once they're actually in those positions, the level of scrutiny that goes into like, all right, this private, you know, turned out to be really good at this thing we thought, you know, he or she would be good at later on down the road. But I do think as a general rule, larger organizations that, you know, need to interview hundreds or thousands of people per year tend to be a little bit more structured in how they do this, whereas smaller organizations that are just getting started or even, you know, companies that are five or 10 years in, you know, have a few hundred people don't necessarily yet have the track record or the data to really assess like, you know, what was actually predictive, just don't put as the same level of structure or rigor behind. Mm-hmm. It. And that's yeah. part of, you know, the problem we think we can help them solve because we're really for two reasons. One is we do it a lot. We've been doing it for a few years, but also because we're focused on very specific roles. Yeah. You know, and I think I've done this like for my company a little more loosely, right? Like I try to evaluate, like I still do all the final round interviews and I'm going to do that for as long as I possibly can until my team just says, you need to get the F out of the way. Oh, bottleneck. Yeah. But I will, I will do it. I don't care how like I, it'll, you're going to have to pry me away from making final calls on hires because it's how important I think it is. Uh, but so uh, right. Right. It's like, it's just so damn important, but I will say that I there's there have been a couple of times where we make tweaks and you it's noticeable where you're like hit rate on getting a good person just basically skyrockets right and um you know one of the, like I, I could just share examples but um one thing I've noticed is by if you have a very structured uh interview process in place you know at least in my case with the first couple rounds I can come in in the final round and I can ask like a handful of questions yep and that is, I can get everything I need to know and whether or not somebody's going to be a good person with a high degree of confidence, like over a 90% hit rate. Yep. Which is basically what we were hiring. Like we got to the point where basically 90% of the folks that we were onboarding to our team were crushing. Like we're doing incredibly well, getting several reviews, feedback from customers, high NPS scores, high client sentiment, text messages from customers saying, hey, this person's killing it. Like, you know, can they not work with other customers and just us? Like all that kind of stuff where you're like trying to trying to get people in front of customers, but they're like getting pulled by several customers who want them and that kind of thing. Yep. All of that really started to happen. And so like one of the things that we we kind of uncovered is that for our role, it's um, people that are intellectually curious, intellectually aware, self-aware and aware of their environment and the surrounding, the challenges and opportunities that lie therein. Um, you know, people that are adaptable. And can quickly kind of shift into a new frame of mind and thinking about solutions. You know, there's team players outgoing for us, uh, outgoing and not necessarily like on a personality level. I mean, of course, like there's introverts and extroverts, like we have some team members that are more introverted, but they're still very engaging and uncovering like the reasons you know, what, what needs to happen and the reason something's successful or not. And they're, they're able to engage and kind of lead conversations, even if they're a little bit more introverted. And so there was all these things that I wanted to, to really uncover in a final round. And for me, I, the question that I kind of landed on is I, I and I love this question, by the way, if you want to, if you want to use it, just give it a shot. I think you're going to like it. Uh, but if you just ask them like, Hey, look, if you were made CEO of your current employer tomorrow, what would be your top three initiatives and why? Yeah. Love and that. you will learn like, it's such a high leverage question because you will learn so much, right? Yeah. Like you're going to learn if they're like critical thinking ability, you're going to learn self-awareness. You're going to learn if they're aware about the challenges and opportunities with their environment. 
you're going to learn what they prioritize, what they think is most important. Yep. Uh, you're going to understand like how they think success should be measured, right? If they're a team player, all of these things. And again, I would ask this to individual contributors. This wasn't for like director level roles, yeah. but it was such a good indicator of their ability to interact with our customer. This is, I guess I should say for customer facing roles, but you know, it, it was such a good indicator of their ability to look around, see the environment, spot opportunities for improvement, be creative, work with others, like all of those. And I could get all of those traits in yeah. like one high impact question. And, and that I feel like honestly was a game changer for the last like two years that we've been hiring, being able to, to get into the details around that question, ask follow-up questions, all that good stuff. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that one because in my one-on-ones with the team, one of the things I used to do a lot, uh, the question I would always ask is I'll meet with you know one or two just random folks from our team each week, randomly selected just to hear how they're doing, get their feedback. Yeah. And at the end of those conversations, I'd always say, let's say I got hit by a bus and we said, you are now in charge of, of Bandelier. What's the first thing you would change? And of course, like nobody ever answers that question by being like, well, I, you know, mourn for a little while. Like, I'm so sorry you got hit by a bus there, yeah, right? You don't, you don't want anybody to say, let's celebrate. schedule, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you do get a really good sense from asking that question of people's level of creativity. Like we had some really creative answers and then mm-hmm. you, know, you get some very tactical answers and it just gives a good sense of kind of how people are thinking, what's front of mind and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. Like I get some answers where it's like, damn, that's incredible. And uh, you would just really get some really interesting feedback or, you know, yeah. it, it just, just people that kind of go based off emotions or people that are more data driven people that, you know, if you're looking for willingness, for instance, for feedback, like saying, I would want to meet with people and really understand areas for improvement and not make assumptions yeah. and be kind of the servant leadership or whatever, like all of those things. So I, I think I like, I think that for whether it's this question or what you were asking or what others may ask, it's like, can you find a high leverage question that can also help you uh, uncover like several traits, if you will. Yep. Um, and, and then tie that piece back too, I think. But yeah, I love, I love this concept of, of really map, mapping up performance review, uh, performance reviews with uh, um, interview questions and finding the correlations. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. And uh, I think you've like dug to like a deeper level. So I, I feel like folks tuning in, this is an important part of what you should be thinking about your talent strategy, like straight up. I'm going to be talking to my team about this and how we can become a little bit more sophisticated in implementing this approach, because I, I think it's it's not something I I feel like I should be giving more thought to this and I haven't. So I really appreciate you, you know, teaching us a little bit about this. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I think, you know, one one benefit we didn't discuss as much, but it's something I always like to highlight is also, you know, a world where folks are really rightfully concerned about bias and interview processes, this is a really good way of beginning to address some of those issues. Um, Because the reality is when you give your interviewers complete autonomy in the interview process, you are going to find that they typically hire people who look, sound, and act a lot like them. Um, It's not always a horrible thing. You know, maybe the interviewer is a fantastic person, uh, but doesn't necessarily lead to the diversity of the team that you're probably trying to optimize. Um, no. This approach can can really help identify some of the traits of um, of top performers, at least, and, and at a bare minimum, create a process that's that's more equitable. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Let's um, you know we actually just released an episode this morning. It's um, the, for everybody tuning in. We're recording this on June thirteenth. 
but we released on June 13th this morning an episode with Daniel Chait, who's the co-founder and CEO of Greenhouse. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with um, applicant tracking? Yep. A lot of our a lot of our clients use them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've probably we've implemented them for 10 plus customers. And it was really cool to sit down with with Daniel and talk shop. Um, but you know, like what what we were talking about with Daniel is like the the value adds of a structured hiring process, right? Like, you know, the bar's not even necessarily that high, but you're right. Like when it comes to um to be bar's not even that high necessarily to be better than the general market at this and and really to see the results and how it can positively impact hiring. But you're right, like from a bias perspective, uh, there's there's a lot of things, unconscious bias uh, that that can really creep into your process. Yep. And, 100%. you know, you have to be very diligent about removing that. And there needs to be very clear questions uh, outlined. And, and to ask the same question doesn't mean to cover the same concept. It means to ask the, the question in the same way, like word for word, to candidates, right? Like, I think that that's another layer where it's like, well, we ask them about their experience with XYZ technology, but in one, you know, one interview, they might ask like, you know, could you tell us about what, you know, can you tell us about what you know, or like, what's your expertise within this? And then they might ask another candidate, can you tell us about a previous project you worked on that encompassed this? And so I think sometimes too, it's like without very clearly defined structure, sometimes hiring managers might think that they're covering the same stuff but they're not actually asking the same question. And so it's leading to different answers. And when you're looking, they happen to put notes in the, in the applicant tracking system afterward. Hopefully they do, right? Uh, they, they might they might have different answers that aren't, but the reason that they're different or one candidate seems more, uh, you know, has more of a robust skill set than the other might just be because they asked the question in a different way. Right, totally. Led to, led to a different answer, right? I mean, there's all sorts of areas where it could get messed up. And it's like, it's just so important to have structured uh, interview questions too, and to make sure that that follow is pro- uh, you know is it, it, that process is followed like all you know for all hires very consistently, right? How else are you going to benchmark? You can't effectively benchmark at scale. Like if you're hiring one off, maybe you can, I don't know, maybe you can do it well. But if you're hiring like 50 people, there's no way you're going to remember interviews that happened last week. Like. Yeah, and, and we see that all the time um, in, in organizations. So yeah, I think that's spot on. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think um, I'm really excited to talk to you about structured training and onboarding. Yep. I like this is okay. So you work with high growth companies in tech, right? Yep. Oh my god. Okay. So I know you're going to be able to relate to this. This this annoys me to no end. Like just it's just so frustrating. So we've all heard from the customer, like, um, you know, in terms of onboarding. Like we don't really have a whole lot. We're a scrappy organization. We're looking for people that, you know, can walk into like a tornado and like whatever, like they, they, all this shit, right? Yep. And like the the correlation that I make to just help them understand like how silly, let's just use that word, silly this really is, is like, imagine like they're pitching a customer, right? And they're like, all right, here's our product. Here's our future set. This is our mission. This is all the stuff we do for you. Onboarding is going to suck. <laughs> like... It's going to be the worst implementation, you know, it, you know, you, you get what I'm saying? Like you would never go to a customer and say that our onboarding is a mess. We don't have resources available for you. You're not going to have access to a customer success rep. We don't have a documented process, but Hey, we're looking, you know, hoping that you can just figure it the F out. Like you would never do that to a customer. And I think it's like, as a startup or growth stage, you don't have to have a robust process, but you got to have a clear process. You can still say we're a young company. We don't have everything in place. But come on, it's, you don't have to have it a heavy lift, but give some effort there and have a structured process. 
we find pretty consistently in our onboarding, um, you know, we send out intake forms to clients and it's actually pretty, I was just talking to uh, one of the folks in our client delivery team about this, like the level of predictive value of just the amount of effort and time they spend on those forms that we send them. They don't even have to build the forms. It's just that they respond to and the amount of time they spend on that is directly connected to how positive an experience they have with us. Somehow the people who fill it out with, you know, two words, every response and things like that. Somehow they always seem to be the ones who are least happy with their team members, have the most issues, those kinds of things. And like, I, I think there is this balance and you've identified it well. And, and like, there is a culture obviously in startups of moving quickly, looking for scrappy people who can help build the plane while they're flying it, which is of course appropriate when you're a fast growing company. I think at its extreme, it can sometimes be used as an excuse, though, <laughs> to not focus well on the process, right? Um, and there's really bad shit that happens as a result of that. And like, you know, especially in companies that are dealing with healthcare, fintech. I mean, we've seen the extremes of this over the last 10 years when like companies are scrappy to an extent that means they're not focused on regulatory compliance, yeah. they're not focused on, um, you know, making sure they have proper documentation for things and people get hurt uh, or can get hurt. And so I think there's got to be this balance of like, yes, we're scrappy. We want to hire people who could walk into a tornado for sure. But the obligation is still on us to minimize that tornado as much as we possibly can. In other words, build the house so that it is resilient to a tornado. Fine. But you still, yeah. <laughs> you still want to avoid the tornado if you can avoid it, right? Yeah, you still don't build the house in the path of a tornado intentionally. So it's just it's just like a bad investment strategy. Like you know, your 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 uh, overhead when it comes to salaries, right, is going to be probably the most expensive thing on your profit loss statement. And yeah. you need to be very you want to get the most out of that investment. Yep. And you need to have a great onboarding program so that new hires can become value creators faster. If you're able to cut down a ramp time from six months to three months, yep. like there's an incredible amount of value, particularly if you're looking at you know, potentially thinking about average tenure or whatnot. And if you can make somebody effective three months sooner, how that allows you to have more productive time for the employee life cycle. Also, it probably impacts tenure. They're happier. They have a better experience. They're probably going to stay with you longer. So they're going to be a productive employee for, for a longer period of time. Um, you know, it takes away the stress. And I think that, um, you know, long-term stress, I think sometimes short-term stress can actually lead to more creativity short-term, but long-term stress where it's like, you're just creating the stressful environment can actually hinder engagement, hinder, it can prevent creativity and have a, a pretty negative effect. So, you know, by making it easy for folks to get a few easy wins, quick wins in the organization to make sure that they have a clear understanding of what's expected to them, how success measured, like what to do in the role, like they're going to produce better outcomes. They're going to feel better about their decision to join the company. And it's like, I, you know, that's the other thing that, you know, there's a massive ROI. And I think it's a lot, a lot of the times much bigger than companies realize, right. Uh, the, 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 the risk, right. The problem, the size of the problem, the size of the return that they could potentially get is usually much bigger. But then there's other thing. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're having somebody bet like their career on joining your team. Like you can put together a 30, 60, 90 day plan. Like, 
come on guys. Like I, I you know, it's just, I, that's one thing we actually implemented when I, I build myself as a CPO uh, for hundred percent SaaS company, like a few years back. And one of the things we built out on the talent side was, you know, essentially permissions to open new roles in greenhouse. And one of the several things that a hiring manager needed to have before opening a role was they have to have a, a documented 30, 60, 90 day plan that meet, meet, met certain criteria. If they didn't have it, they couldn't open the role. Yep. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, and I think that approach makes, makes a lot of sense. I, I do think there is this tendency. I, I think it's diminishing now. This is one of the rare positive uh, side effects of the market we're in right now is that I, I think people are just being a little bit more deliberate in what they're hiring for and what tasks need to get done. And in that ROI consideration than they might've been two years ago, where it was just, let's get bodies in here and we'll figure it out later. So I think that is, that is a positive, um, that is a positive change in, in mindset. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's a silver lining to market corrections and constrictions, right? Like we improve, we get better, hopefully, yeah, totally. or we go out of business. <laughs> so it's it's so it's companies, up. right? It's a time to tighten up and 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 get better. And companies are are a little bit more so like forced to to do that in certain ways. And in some ways, I think like we're forced to do that in an up market because we need to be more competitive. But in down markets, like there's there's a, a different type of optimization that um, could be kind of a silver lining, right? Uh, helps fair. us prepare for the next phase of growth. And then there's some things too where. Maybe we don't feel like we had time for in an up market because it's just like we're onboarding, growing, like we're trying to just yeah. It's when the option is doing you know a detailed onboarding plan versus signing a new deal, you know where someone's attention is going to be focused, right? Like yeah, it's and to your point about ROI, yes, these are very high ROI investments, but it can take a while, and the ROI in this case can be hidden a little bit, like you don't see it for a little while. It doesn't appear clearly on the profit and loss. Uh, like, oh, here's the revenue that was driven by spending yeah. incremental hour on somebody's onboarding plan. And so I think as a result, particularly short-term focused businesses tend to overlook uh, overlook this sort of thing. Yeah. So it's interesting. So this is, uh, you got to check out the episode with Daniel because this I just seeing the parallels. Um, you, you both have a similar philosophy. And uh, we were talking about like one of the first, I think it was larger deals that Greenhouse had signed. And he was going into the meeting, like the competitive ATS that they were considering was like a few thousand bucks a year. And Daniel, for like the size of this, you know, agreement or company that he, he quoted him at like 15 grand for like the functionality that they would need or something. And like the head of talent was like 15 grand a year. Like, I, you know, I'm paying a few thousand. How am I supposed to go to my C- CFO and, and convince them to go 300x or, you know, go up, up so much in price? And so Daniel was like, one thing he was incredibly good at, and I think that a lot of talent executives and just executives in general need to get good at is like, he was like, you don't have a, you know, a $10,000 problem here. Like you have a hundred million dollar problem. And he kind of mapped out, like you said, you needed to grow by X percentage over the next two years, right? You're paying this much for all of these hires. You're having this, 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 and this pain point. Here's how this is impacting the North Star metrics of your business. And as a result, here is your problem. Your problem could potentially cost you X amount of growth. And he was able to basically show, extrapolate how getting it right on the talent acquisition side uh, potentially could open up floodgates for additional revenue growth and getting it wrong could cost them hundreds of millions. And when he was able to sell that, then it's like 10 million, like or 10,000, what the heck is 10,000? I think you can make the same argument 
on on the onboarding side. So I just think as executives, we have to be really thoughtful of like, have we given enough time to really to put together like to understand the cost of getting this wrong and the opportunity to getting this right and extrapolating it across the entire organization. Because it's it's again, it's a lot more significant, I think, than most leaders realize, right? Yeah. 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 Well, we yeah, we invest a lot, a fair amount in onboarding, right? It's not like, you know, probably the is we could probably be more tech enabled in these types of things, but we're constantly iterating, not only like on our interview process, but on our onboarding, we probably spend just as much time if not more actually trying to kind of tweak our onboarding program at this point to just make sure that people can get up speed to, to speed quickly and, and add value to our customers. Right. Yeah. And and I think, yeah, that structured onboarding, structured training processes where we're continuing to collect data, using it as an opportunity to actually validate, not just, you know, using it as an opportunity to upskill new team members, although obviously that's the primary focus, but actually validate the assumptions we made in the interview process and see, hey, is this person continuing now that they're actually on our payroll to display the qualities that we thought they would based on the interview responses and continuing to track that? We've actually found our training data is more predictive um, even than our interview data. So, Yeah, I mean, we've all, like for executives tuning in responsible for hiring, everybody here several times throughout their life has bought something and then been really, really disappointed with either like the onboarding or new customer experience or just the ongoing experience, right? Like we can all resonate with that and should have a fair Okay, so let's let's understanding that what are we doing, right? To create great experiences for people because they're, you know, they're thinking the similar things like when when you feel like somebody else dropped the ball when you bought a new product, a new SaaS product or whatever else, and it was not what you expected, they're feeling this and thinking the same thing about a bad onboarding experience. Yep. And so think about when you're in that mindset of how you felt, how would you like, you know, if they're in that mindset, how are they going to perform in relation to if you had gotten that right? So I think that's, you know, it's kind of the the last point I would like to make just to kind of close it up. And I think we wanted to move into more like collecting data during training. Yep. So I'm actually really excited to learn from you on this because I'm not not totally sure where you're going to take this, honestly, because I, I just haven't given a whole lot of thought to collecting data and training. So I'm kind of curious to see how you think about this. Yeah. So I think most companies use their training process, understandably, as a mechanism um, to, you know, provide content to new team members. Hopefully, in some cases, they're actually using it as an opportunity, not just to bombard them with PowerPoint slides and handbooks and stuff like that, but actually to create an interactive environment where folks are actually getting the opportunity to practice skills in that training uh, process that they'll be using on the on the job. Uh, for us, though, there's a secondary consideration to our training process, which is typically two, a two-week boot camp, which is we're using it to gather data on how folks will perform ultimately in the role. So we're actually using it to validate, like I mentioned, a lot of the conclusions we drew in the interview process and make sure that those conclusions were accurate. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, we have a process where folks are going, indeed, you know, we're, we are giving them content, but at each step of the way, you know, we're teaching them psychology of sales, we're teaching them how to craft a cold personalized email, how to, you know, structure a sales call with a gatekeeper, how to structure a sales call once you connect with a decision maker. At each step of the way, they're submitting assignments, they're doing role plays with one of our trainers. And those trainers are going through the exact same process 
that I described in the interview process that are grading out on a standard rubric every single assessment, providing feedback to team members, seeing how well they implement that feedback. Um, and the reason that's so important is because, you know, it's pretty easy to uh, fake a trait we have found in an interview process. Like we we hope, we think we've designed a process that's in the interview that's pretty well designed to get around that. But like invariably, there are times we still get it wrong. Once folks are in that training process, you know, that's two weeks and it's much, much harder on some level to, to fake things. Easy if you're the kind of person who's always late to be on time for one or two interviews, but over a two-week period, if you're the kind of person who's chronically late, more likely than not, there's going to be one or two days in there where you don't show up for a particular meeting. And so we're going to be able to identify that. Um, and what that allows us to do is, you know, in addition to all this data we're collecting the interview process, we're also collecting data in the training process. Basically, A, to ensure they are a good fit for any of our roles, which usually they are, and then B, to match them most appropriately with a role that's the right fit for them. Maybe in the interview process, you know, they displayed traits that made us think they'd be great for an inside sales role, but actually in the training process, we're identifying, hey, they're really struggling with sales role plays, doing better on a different kind of role play that's a little bit, requires a little bit less aggression. Let's push them into, into a role like that. So it allows us to both confirm and then adjust some of the conclusions that that we drew in the interview process. I think there's some really interesting reports that could be pulled in here, like case studies um, to show the ROI of like the impact of spotting performance issues as early on as possible. Yeah. Like, okay, a lot of companies don't realize that they have a, a problem with a performance till six months to a year in. Yep. Like imagine the value of getting to that in the first couple of weeks of yep. indicators and, and how that can protect uh, a team team's productivity or customer experience by quickly evaluating, determining like if somebody seems to be on track to get to a competent level in their role. And, yep. and if not, it's like the conversation starts sooner. You're, you're limiting your exposure and risk earlier on. And of course, you do everything you can to optimize talent acquisition, but there's never going to be a 100% hit rate. And, and, and sometimes things up it comes up like there's a lot of reasons why performance maybe isn't uh you know where where it needs to be so there's a million reasons so I, I I see the value and try to like can you get indicators from day one it like why is there a pause it's like we're evaluating town acquisition and then we just kind of like well we'll see how it goes and come back in six months or a year versus just consistently monitor through the entire candidate employee life cycle which is I think sort of what you're getting at, right? Exactly. Um, and I, I do think we just did a, we actually just published a white paper on cost of turnover. Yeah. And of course, the cost of turnover after three months or six months, looks very different than the cost of, looks very different than the cost of turnover after just an interview, right? Well, the only sunk cost there is that, you know, 30 minutes or 60 minutes, whatever. But it's still also much higher than, you know, hey, we hired this person we discovered within week one or week two. It's not a good fit for them. It's not a good fit for us. Um, and you know, the thing that doesn't as often get discussed is you're generally doing people a favor. If you identify that early on, that they're not going to be a good fit for any of your roles. I know it sucks at the time because, Hey, I'm so excited to start this new role, but what sucks even more is to invest all your time, all your energy into something for three months only to discover it's not a good fit. Hey, better to learn that, you know, after two days rather than after three months. Right. So, yeah. And I think it's, it's like, it's having a really structured process to help people improve. Too, yeah. because like I could just only imagine the glass door reviews if you let somebody go after three weeks and they're just like, what the hell? 
Uh, yeah, you, you know? I, I think like, so yes and no. So I, I definitely agree. And we have gotten this question before. Uh, like, why don't you just hire a whole bunch? If you all this data and your training so predictable, why don't you just hire people and get rid of half of them after two weeks? And the obvious answer to that question is like, that's not a really amazing candidate experience to get hired with the expectation that you're going to be like, oh, so of it's, course. Yeah, long-term, it's going to really that, mess that's with your not, ability. Yeah. That's not what obviously what we're about. I think separate from that, though, it is also true that if you have, you know, 10, 15% of the time, which we do, and we talk about this openly, you know, in our training process, identify, hey, this person, you know, turns out isn't exhibiting the traits that are going to make them successful in this role. I don't think we're doing them any favors if it is something that we don't think is uh, getting addressed and very early on what we're doing uh, is, you know, providing feedback saying, hey, yeah. here's where this is missing the mark. If it doesn't seem like something that's going to be able to be addressed, um, you know, I don't think you're doing them any favors by keeping them there for three months, going through the rigmarole of, you know, repeating the same thing over and over and over again. With no. the expectation of, uh, no, there's no point. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, I, and I think too, it's like, it's, it's like, okay, well, what could we have done better during the interview process? Okay. We feel like we have a pretty good structure. And of course we can always be better. We feel like we have a pretty good structured interview process in place. We have like a 90% hit rate. 10% of the people don't end up working out. That doesn't mean we should ha- hang on three months. If we feel like we can have a cadence to help them improve, like, okay, they're not hitting like the onboarding phase, like they're not hitting targets or showing consistency or whatever it might be, we can have those conversations in a structured multi-step process. We're not going to just say, okay, well, you screwed this up. Goodbye. But we can over like a period of maybe a month or two, we can have kind of a structured process to see if they improve. But again, even if that means letting somebody go in three months versus nine months, uh, that, that, that still like minimizes your risk and the amount of, um, yeah, the amount of risk and cost. So I don't think it's about like rushing people out the door. It's just really starting to uncover it as early as possible if they're tracking using you know the data that you you mentioned. And uh, as long as it's it's happening to not to a lot of people, right? If it's happening a lot, then that's of course a problem with talent acquisition. Well, that's a failure in your interview process. If it's right. To a lot that, of people. Yeah. So I think what we're saying is like you have to of course have a structured interview and hiring process. Get that right. Exactly. But then from there, once you made the decision, there's there's not a reason why you shouldn't be monitoring progress very early. And if if you have data that is predictive at an early stage, it's better to make a decision sooner rather than later so that it doesn't impact productivity of your entire or you know, productivity or, or the outcomes for your entire team. Exactly. Um, and, the, and the other piece that we haven't addressed as much is just, you know, fairness and transparency to team members about what that process looks like. So we try to be very open when folks mm-hmm. get onboarded of like, this is the process. This is what it looks like. We are, you know, we are going to do everything we possibly can to be transparent with you early about how you're doing, what you need to do to get to uh, to the next level, like those kinds of things. And yeah. I think having a structured process really is what enables you to do that. Yeah, I think too, it's like sharing onboarding process with people before they accept the offer. Like, exactly. hey, this is what your first 90 days in the role is going to look like. Yep, exactly. You know, one thing that I found predictive, and this is like a more tactical type of thing, but one thing I've I've seen predictive of success, um, and I don't have robust data for this, it's just like my experience, right? Yep. Um, is people who are asking a lot of detailed questions around how is my success going to be measured? What's onboarding going to look like? Getting into like, what's the financial health of the organization? You know, is it profitable? What's the runway? Whatever the situation might be. 
Um, you know, what's the strategy? What's the market saturation look like? And you're not going to see this from every like more so entry level type of role. But I will say, when you get somebody who's junior and is asking these types of questions, I'm like, oh hell yeah, yep. You know? and, and so I think that to the extent that they're evaluating you, yes. versus like the folks that are just like, yeah, like whatever, like I'll yeah. Um, yeah. put my entire career and faith into you, <laughs> like, you know, like you kind of want to see. And I'm not saying that there's not situations like, you know, when I when I took some roles earlier in my career, it's like, yeah, whatever I could get. Like I didn't have a whole lot of experience. I wasn't going to say no, regardless of like culture. So I get that too. I think it's a balancing act. But I I will say that it's it's a green flag. Yeah. when people are, are asking a lot of oh, questions yeah. about onboarding as well. It's just on the flip side. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, hey, look, I, you know, I, we're, we're coming up on time here. It's been a, it's been a phenomenal episode um, you know, for executive leaders out there, right, that are responsible for building teams. Any other kind of like takeaways or you know, final kind of thoughts that you'd have for, for folks tuning in? I think uh, the the primary point I'd highlight is it's never too early to start measuring things. And it always starts when you start measuring things with a sample size of one. So it will always feel ridiculous when you start the process. But what we found is that in the long run, um, it, it pays significant dividends. So I definitely encourage folks to bring the same level of rigor they bring to their financial analysis of their business to the talent acquisition side of their business. I love it. Well, Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. Really insightful. We we covered some new stuff today that we've never done on the show, and we've done over 90 episodes now. Um, so I'm, I'm really thankful for you coming on and, and sharing your experience and, and wisdom with us today. And I, I hope you decide to come back uh, sometime in the next year. I'd love that. And uh, congrats on over 90 episodes. I'm disappointed I wasn't number 100, but... Right. Uh, well, you know, that. <laughs> I mean, that's actually interesting. I wonder if we should do something for that. I guess we should kind of like make that a big a big yeah. thing, right? Yeah. We stuck with it. I think they say like most podcasts don't get past like five, 10 episodes. Right. Or... Definitely not. Well, anyways, Jeremy, thank you. Appreciate it. And for uh, everybody tuning in, thank you so much for supporting us. And we hope we're adding value to you. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing you next time. Take care. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.